0: You are listening to Kubernetes Bytes, a podcast bringing you the latest from the world of cloud-native data management. My name is Ryan Wallner, and I'm joined by Bob and Shaw, coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. We'll be sharing our thoughts on recent cloud-native news and talking to industry experts about their experiences and challenges managing the wealth of data in today's cloud-native ecosystem.
1: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me
0: good morning good afternoon and good evening wherever you are we're coming to you from boston massachusetts today is june 22nd 2022 i hope everyone is doing well and staying safe so let's dive into it Bobin. uh sorry i had to miss you know the last episode we (laughs) crushed it um you know thanks for the shout out at the beginning of it i did listen to it (laughs) um but what have you been who else
3: uh, I, I don't know. I've been busy. Uh, this this was the first weekend uh, where we had to move our lawn and that's the <laughs> life that I've done that. So it wasn't like, again, it was the first time. So it was painful because we, we, we had weeds all over the lawn and had yeah. the edges had grown all the way up. So it took more time. Uh, I'm, I'm still waiting for the phase where uh, people say that mowing is kind of therapeutic. <laughs> and, and yeah. so, uh, it didn't feel it feel like that this time around. So uh, maybe, maybe in a few months I'll get into uh, get into the. Only floor.
0: to some people does it feel that way, Baba. Yeah. You might never get there. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> How about nice. you? What have you been up to? Yeah. You know, we, we were down in New York. Uh, we had a, a family member pass away. That's why I wasn't here. So, yeah. you know, know, unfortunately but at the same time you do get to see a lot of uh, family during those times that Mm -hmm. we're very thankful for so that's where i was last few weeks um this week i'm actually traveling so i'm not even i said coming from to you from boston but i'm I'm in new york and uh, i'm headed down to west virginia to do a bit of hiking with a a few of my friends so really excited about the week forward maybe you know hit a couple barbecue spots we'll see what what else we can do down there but that's what i'm up to oh nice. that sounds awesome okay. <laughs> yeah no i'm going to a national park Bob, and this is uh i feel like i'm, I'm following in your footsteps here
3: <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> i I'll, I'll look for your uh, reviews on uh, how the new national park is so
0: yeah we're just doing a bit that's uh, sort of the northern tip of the uh, mm-hmm. blue ridge parkway which is just only very small part of it but I've, I've wanted to do the whole thing i have to go yeah. back i guess <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Great. So uh, before we get into today's topic on uh, InfluxDB, really exciting stuff uh, and excited to have Rick on, let's talk about uh, the news a little bit. So uh, I have a few things here. The first one I wanted to bring up was there's a really... Good webinar uh, coming up, uh, cncf.io, or sorry, community.cncf.io on uh, Canister, uh, which is uh, part of Kasten's portfolio of products. Uh, Canister is actually the piece that um, you can dig into the specifics around how to do application level data protection. I know we've talked about this many times on the show before, yeah. uh, but Canister is actually an interesting way to dive into it if you're new to it. You know, understanding what does application level really mean. Uh, definitely go check that out. Really good webinar. Um, And if I remember correctly, Canister is an open source project, right? Like, even though it is, I believe, yeah, unless that's changed. (laughs) But (laughs) I believe it is. Um, There's also um, a, a really Great uh, podcast episode on our uh, on the, the Google Kubernetes podcast, uh, which is all about cloud native storage. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one of the previous employees from uh, Storage OS, so sorry, previously Storage OS, yeah. um, is on that show and talks all about uh, uh, cloud native storage. So anytime we hear you know other podcasts talking about cloud native storage, we always want to recommend it. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, that podcast is great. So uh, definitely go check that out. We'll put that in the show link. Uh, but if you're looking for it is kubernetespodcast.com pretty straightforward yeah. <laughs> you'll find it there um, i still envy
3: that whenever you look look up kubernetes podcast they rank higher than us so uh, I mean, we'll our- get there
0: we'll get there <laughs> they have the seo <laughs> down pat there so
3: yeah. <laughs> um, no i listened to that episode it was good like they uh, yeah yeah the guy from on i right, did refer yeah. to a couple of white papers that the open source community has published around disaster recovery uh for kubernetes storage or for kubernetes stateful applications. so yeah that's a really good, good resource
0: yeah really really interesting uh, podcast for sure uh the other bit was i for, don't know if you i forgot if you mentioned this last week but i did want to throw but did you mention the annual report last week yeah did but i
3: Okay, I, I highlighted different things. Like I, I'm looking at the notes right now, and you have something that that I didn't even pay attention. Yeah, to. Yeah,
0: so I won't repeat the annual report, but lots of yeah. good information in in the annual report. Um, of one of which I went down a rabbit hole, and I found out I found out more more uh, up to date from this week is uh, there's a uh, kep that's in sort of um, in in progress, and it's the enhancements. Three thousand three hundred thirty-seven, but it's KEP uh, three 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 three. That's easy to remember. Uh, but it's called retroactive default storage class assignment. I wanted to spend a, a, just two seconds on it because I thought, you know, as a storage and Kubernetes sort of focused podcast, it was actually an interesting uh, problem that they're solving with this KEP, which is, um, you know, we all understand uh, how storage classes hopefully at this point work in in Kubernetes, uh, and you have to choose one in order to provision storage, whether that's um, statically or dynamically. Um, And you can set default versions of that. So if you're just provisioning a volume and you don't specify, you're going to get a default uh, storage class provision for you. Now, there's a little hole, as they describe it, in this uh, workflow, which is if you don't set a uh, default storage class and you try to provision storage, that piece of storage will never be provisioned. It'll just sit there pending. Um Ooh. Until you uh, go ahead and set a default storage class and kick the tires on it, that's the key here with this kep in this this change is that even if you set a default storage class after your thing, your piece of storage is pending, you have to sort of delete it the mm-hmm. object and let it re- get recreated so that it picks up that default storage class that you've set since not having one. Um, this fixes that in the sense that if you have any that don't have an assignment uh, and would have used a default storage class, when you set it, it'll automatically kick those tires for you, setting off the uh, whole dynamic provisioning uh, of of storage from that default storage class. So kind of an interesting uh, problem that you solved. I don't know if you've um, run into it before. Mm-hmm. I know I actually I haven't run into this before. Yeah, right. I think most of the time I'm working with storage providers, I'm very clear on which storage class I'm choosing from. But I know a, a large use case is choosing the default one. So we'll have a link to that cap uh, in there. And this is
3: a perfect scenario, right? Where uh, uh, we didn't even know this was an issue until we have a solution for it. So I think that's the, <laughs> that the perfect way to find some, find out about some some tweaks that are missing from the open source like community. Absolutely. Uh, Uh, Okay, I think for me, right, I I did have a few funding rounds to highlight and then a couple of news articles as well. So uh, to start with the funding rounds, data stacks uh the you might know them as the cassandra company the the astra db I, I think we had patrick on on one of the podcasts to talk about kate sandra uh data stacks, so recently raised a private equity round of 115 million dollars and which valued the company at 1.6 billion dollars and i think from a couple of articles that i read they are looking to focus more on that astra db and astra streaming uh parts of things so basically mm-hmm. providing cassandra as a service but still using Kubernetes under the covers to host that managed service. So um, we see this uh, as a growing trend, as people are moving more and more, uh, as people are building more and more modern applications and consuming these modern distributed databases. Uh, the second funding round was from uh, Platform Nine. They raised twenty-six million dollars. They didn't share details around, right? Like what round was yeah. it, or what the new valuation is. But uh, just looking through Crunchbase, I found that uh, this this twenty-six million funding round brings their total money raised to like hundred million, and I think they want to spend this money on. Uh, Focusing on like go to market and some R&D to seek out those larger scale enterprise deployments. I think they are targeting more larger enterprises now with this new funding. So uh, yeah, we'll have links for both of those. Um, Then I think the third funding round, which is more from a startup, not from well-known names like Datastacks or Platform9, an Israeli startup called FinOut. They raised like a $14 million Series A funding round. Again, no idea on what their valuation is. Uh, but uh, an, again, another startup that we see in the ecosystem that's helping customers do cost management for their cloud deployments or for their Kubernetes deployment, right? So looking at their their website, it looks like uh, if you have FinOut running, you can point them to your Kubernetes cluster and you can get the the cost of running individual pods or running an application inside a specific namespace they can also help you like break down your cost into like how much does each folder in an s3 bucket or each snowflake query cost you in your overall aws bill for example so all of this uh, i think goes more towards the trend that okay people are running these and now they they want to make sure that they have optimized their infrastructure so finout is another startup that's uh, trying to go after that space uh, a couple of additional articles. Uh, I know we covered a couple of uh, use cases last time. Uh, uh, companies like Coinbase and Airbnb that are using uh, Kubernetes now. Uh, Mercedes Benz—they uh, have—they had an article out where uh, I think end of 2021 they shared some numbers. They are running 900 Kubernetes clusters uh, across wow. four different data centers on-prem. So that's a huge number. the, the thing that caught my eye was. They are using cluster API and running these clusters on OpenStack. So,
0: uh, I don't yeah, know. Probably, probably have to unless they want just to uh, give an arm and a leg for the 900 clusters
3: <laughs> that's true so I, I think right now uh, just reading through the article right uh, they, they do have like five different platform teams with a couple focused on just providing that Kubernetes as a service platform for their engineers and then uh, there are uh, the, the three remaining platform teams, teams focused on things like database as a service or providing that logging sure. and monitoring yeah. as a service and security and including runtime registry and image scanning so they do have a huge organization uh, to support those 900 clusters uh, interesting thing was they are looking at aks and eks uh, or even running uh, kubernetes using the, the same orchestration on mm-hmm. ec2 instances so they are looking at uh, looking to offload some of these clusters or maybe the new ones to the cloud uh, so right. that they don't have to scale their the, the platform team from like where they are where they already are so it's an interesting article talking about an actual use case and how they are using it so we'll link that yeah. in the uh, in the show notes as well yeah
1: great. and
3: then uh, the last thing that i wanted to highlight was uh, i think vworks had like a gitops con last week and one of the interesting announcements that came out of it was uh, they can th- through weave policy which is what customers can use to set predefined policies, and it will test against your clusters. They can now also help you set HIPAA policies. So healthcare customers that are dealing with patient information, which is supposed to be confidential in PII, uh, they can now have these HIPAA policies integrated into Weave policy and have these predefined rules. So they can cover not just a single cluster but using this policy as a service offering they can cover multiple clusters and multiple phases so uh, if they can monitor a cluster that's already running so application that's already running so runtime, so running it in audit mode deploy time so they can have these policy integrations into the admission controller so if things don't look right or if things aren't complying they can basically uh, deny that application from being deployed and then during development as well so whenever they are committing something uh, to the, their repo, they can check against these policies as well. So, helping with the shift left uh, 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 methodology. So, I think using this, it just felt interesting that now these compliance standards are getting integrated into your CI CD or GitOps pipelines uh, where uh, you can just. Make sure you can just rest assured that these tools will take care of making sure you're compliant. And at the end of the day, you can just generate and download some reports to validate that you are compliant against these standards. So something, something that's interesting. Uh, again, we'll have it in the show notes. We want to learn more about it.
0: Right, absolutely. Lots of good news going on. Uh, mm-hmm. Seems like the end of June, things are really picking up. Maybe maybe that's just me. week. Cool. So, you know, let's dive into our topic. Uh, we have a really great guest on today. Today's topic is going to be all about InfluxDB, sort of time series database. We're going to be talking about what is time series, how InfluxDB runs on Kubernetes. And um, our guest is the VP of products, um, uh, Rick Spencer from Influx Data. Uh, so he's had a previous role at the VP of Influx uh, Data Platform, where he focused on sort of uh, cloud native delivery, CICD, high availability, multi-cloud, multi-region deployments, and on all things scale. So I'm sure we'll have lots of uh, interesting questions for Rick. And uh, without further ado, let's ha- get him on the show.
1: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
2: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
1: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
0: Welcome to the show, Rick. It's great to have you on Kubernetes Bites. Let's just jump into about a little bit about yourself and what you do.
4: Sure so first of all, thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this discussion I'm uh, always love to talk about Kubernetes geek out on on it absolutely uh, one way or another. Uh, so I am currently the VP of product at Influx data, but these are fresh wounds. I was most recently <laughs> the VP of engineering for the uh, platform team and during the two and a half uh, almost three years that have been in at influx we've gone from running one production cluster to running probably over 15 and you know we have a huge kubernetes bill so we really run kubernetes at scale in a couple ways we run really big clusters Mm -hmm. and we also run on all three clouds big the big three clouds i should say and uh, we run in multiple regions of those clouds and we do CI CD to them like multiple times a day on a typical gotcha. work day. So, yeah, it's where we're.
0: So that, <clears throat> so that's this? what you're up to now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, but, I mean, you mentioned InfluxDB, and, and the probably the good question to answer now is, <laughs> what is InfluxDB in your own words? I guess
4: right. So um, we are a time series platform. Of course, we have a time series database. At the core? What is time series? Like the most simple answer I can give you is that's like your time stamped data.
0: Mm.
4: And uh, we are able to ingest, process, and support queries of that data at substantial scale. So, for instance, the data could be metrics from your Kubernetes cluster or from the nodes that those clusters are r- running on. Uh, A lot of our customers are in the IoT space. They're collecting sensor data. Um, We support nanosecond resolution in that data. Um, And, you know, I can go on about the different ways that you can get InfluxDB. um, But let's just say the probably most interesting for the Kubernetes discussion is that we have something called InfluxDB Cloud. It's a fully managed service that we manage on your behalf and that runs on kubernetes so it's a very stable uh database run on kubernetes all three clou- all three of the top clouds in multiple regions
3: okay now that's is, perfect because that was my, my one of my questions when you answered the first question right like that you run on these different cloud platforms As like is it possible that you're running the inflex dp cloud on kubernetes but thank you for asking that yep. yeah
0: yeah <clears throat> Now, is the fact that you run them on all major clouds, is that just for customer choice or is that, uh, you know, your choice uh, for, you know, flexibility? Curious around that.
4: Yeah. So um, there's a saying called data has gravity. So that's one of the main elements of it, of the reason that we do that is if you're collecting terabytes of data, you probably don't want to egress that out of the cloud. Provider <clears throat> transferred across the world to some other cloud provider. Like if let's say you have a SaaS product that's like your HR system
0: mm-hmm.
4: and you're exchanging kilobytes of data and well, if they're using Node, maybe megabytes, you know, of <laughs> HTML or whatever, but um you don't really care if like that. Is you know in Europe somewhere and you're in California, and you know it's just like a such a comparatively small amount of data, mm-hmm. you don't care so much about the latency. If you're writing and reading data at the scale that our customers do, they want it in a region that's close to where that data is being uh, produced so that they can keep the latency low and in some cases just reduce their overall cost. So that's why we um, that's why we provide so many options for where to access the SaaS service? Okay, gotcha. So
3: I think next question that I had was like talking about all the different use okay. cases. I know you uh, mentioned IoT as being one of, our uh, IoT or edge computing cool. as one of those uh, most popular use cases that InfluxDB has. So how does that architecture look like? How does it work with a SaaS service and then data being generated at those remote locations?
4: Um. Sure. Like, let me let me break that down for you, like, real yeah. quick. So, um, let's say you're an IoT vendor, and that you're writing a custom IoT application. I'll pick something that one of our customers does. Um, like, you're monitoring some specific kind of industrial equipment, right? Let's say a big machine, mm-hmm. like a fan or something like that, and that's what you specialize in so um every factory that you work in or every plant or whatever let's say has 10 of these fans and those fans are millions of dollars they're covered with sensors Mm
0: -hmm.
4: you're generating you know metrics you know multiple metrics per millisecond if you know that's you know going down to the nanosecond granularity and then um you probably have some kind of embedded uh device on that which you know is not running linux it's just like embedded it's doing a local control loop but one thing that you might have on that is this agent that we have called telegraph which then is able to take all that data and send it to another InfluxDB location. So Telegraph is an agent that you can install, you can build, put it wherever you want. And it's just great at slurping up data, writing it to an InfluxDB instance. Let's say within that factory, you have a gateway, mm-hmm. like maybe you bought it from Dell or HP or something like that. And you just have this like huge honking computer mm-hmm. that's hanging on a rail in the you know boiler room or whatever. <laughs> and you are running Linux on that, right? So then what you can have on there is InfluxDB, OSS. It's totally free. It's our OSS version. And you're just crushing that with all the data from the fans, right? Mm -hmm. And then there, if you're, let's say you're on the plant floor and you're like, oh, I just got an alert. Um, How did you get that alert? Because what happens is that local InfluxDB instance can be reading all that data, Mm -hmm. super high resolution. It, we have a programming language called Flux that runs within that uh, instance, right, Within in, in FluxDB itself. Mm-hmm. And it can, like, detect, like, um, the combination of this sensor and this sensor is bad. We should, like, right. page or, or whatever, however you do the alerts, we can support arbitrarily complex or simple Got it. alerts and transformations on that device. We can also do other computations, but we can also serve visualizations and et cetera. So you get the alert, you log into that gateway, you look at InfluxDB, you look at your graphs, and you're like, okay, now I know what's going on. Nothing to worry about here. Okay. And then what you can be doing is like, that's a lot of data that you're collecting, right? Right there. Um, If you care about all the data, that's fine. Mm -hmm. You can just replicate that. More typical is that you'll use this another flux function which will transform that data and usually quote downsample sample it okay. by either like aggregating rows like <clears throat> just give me the maximum reading for this sensor every minute or every second instead of every right. single you know instead of a hundred per millisecond or whatever right so you can collapse that down you can okay. aggregate it you can also enhance or simplify that data then you write it to a special bucket which is replicated so that, it's called edge data replication which is a feature Then that, that OSS instance of InfluxDB, will automatically replicate that data via a durable queue up to our multi-tenant SaaS. Now, if you are looking at 100 plants, mm-hmm. each that have many of these big pieces of equipment, now you can get an aggregated view across all the plants. You know, like that sure. plant got yeah. a, an alert, etc. So there, we have two kinds of users, basically. One kind of user is actually building a custom user experience on top of it. And mm-hmm. so we have all the APIs and developer tools and et cetera. So um, their customers don't know that they're using InfluxDB under the hood, right? Sure. They just sure. think they're using you know, whatever the service provider is. We have another kind of customer that is doing operational monitoring at scale, and <clears throat> they're just required to have a custom solution just because of the, the scale or whatever uh, other requirements. That we're working at, at in that cloud SaaS version, it has all those features and more. So you get Flux, you get the visualization libraries, you get all the all the developer tools. Um, Telegraph can talk directly to your cloud account. That if you want on that uh, SaaS version, uh, you know sometimes you don't have a gateway and you're just writing directly from your mm-hmm. devices or from your servers or whatever. You're just writing directly to the cloud. That's fine too. Um, uh, we have a free tier. So if you just want to come in and kick the tires, that SaaS version also is also what we call pay as you go. So it's consumption based. So if you're just starting a company or just starting a project or whatever, you just mm-hmm. pay for what you're consuming. So you don't have to like, you know, commit to like yep. a huge license and you can just use <laughs> like your department credit card or whatever and spend five bucks a month while you're prototyping. And then you know if your workload grows to you know ten thousand bucks a month or whatever, that just means your company's successful and you know so that that's um that's an overview from a product perspective, yeah no, which no, is my, my <laughs> new job so, uh,
0: <laughs> no that's very yeah. insightful I think you know I had several questions come up in my head during that uh, explanation mm-hmm. I thought there was a lot of uh, interesting pieces of that one of which uh, that I want to key in on is you know you talked about sort of the high resolution uh, and, and sort of nanosecond sort of data um, mm-hmm. you know what? what does InfluxDB do differently to handle that type of resolution from these different senses or different time series data sets that, say, a typical uh, relational or NoSQL database can't do? Like, why why go down the route of, of looking specifically at
4: InfluxDB? Right, why do you need Influx, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah, hey, uh, okay, why don't you just use MySQL or whatever? Yeah, <laughs> so um, uh, what um, people find is that at scale, if you start to try to query across time, you must have a purpose-built time series database. So, um, for example, we have a function called aggregate window and flux, which says like, it takes two parameters, Mm -hmm. a function on which to aggregate, for example, mean, min, Mm -hmm. max, medium, you can actually put, whatever you want. You know, you can write your own custom function to aggregate and so it takes a function and it takes a time range like mm-hmm. every hour, every 10 minutes, every second, etc. Like what happens is we have a lot of customers who come over to us from document databases, relational databases where everything worked at trivial demo scale, but once they hit real <laughs> scale, they just can't those queries just start to fall over, they just can't handle right. it. They also can't handle the ingest. Right. So Sorry, are you interested in, I can peel the onion a little bit. Yeah, uh, ingest
0: is definitely a big part of it that, uh, yeah, please go down that rabbit hole. <laughs>
4: okay, so as you are writing data to InfluxDB, um, it's got a few parts of the data model. So it's got a like a measurement, which is basically like just to group all these together is my measurement, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then you have fields, things like, uh, which are the new the numerical things that you're sampling that change a lot, right? Like, so CPU load, um, unless it's pegged at hundred percent, it's going (laughs) to be different every time (laughs) you sample it, uh, temperature, vibration, speed, like all the, all the different things that you might be sampling. Um, those are called fields. And then there's tags, which is basically metadata. Mm -hmm. And then of course, a timestamp. Yep. Um, so as you, stream that data in. we're very highly optimized to take that data in like big batches. Like we're not a data lake, right? We don't like, you don't like, you don't have to like save up a whole bunch of data and then give it to to us to process. And we notify you an hour later that we're done processing it. Like in real time, we can ingest a huge amount of data. It's usually readable. In like a couple hundred milliseconds. Got it. And then uh, we take that data and we break it up in the, into, just conceptually. I won't go into the zeros and ones, but conceptually, <laughs> we write it into different tables for you automatically based okay. on the tag set. So what is a tag set? Might be like plant ID, device ID, mm-hmm. customer ID, any kind of metadata that you're going to want to go back and look at later, like. Um, like, if you want to say, you know, show me all of the results by factory mm-hmm. or show me all the results for this customer, right? Those are different things that you're going to query on. As we write, we create those indexes and those separate tables to make those come back very fast. And of course, we order everything by time as it gets written as well. Gotcha. One thing that's important to note about that is we're actually schema on write which is a, it's a sharp knife. <laughs> so <laughs> it's very handy because if you, you know, decide that you want to add metadata later or change metadata or add fields or whatever, you can just do it from your client that, that right. Got it. You know, um, it, in point of fact, you can actually tell a bucket, like I don't want to be schema on, right. We call that, you know, an explicit, an explicit schema bucket um, in case you have that, you know, as I say, it's a sharp knife. Yep. If you like add too many tag values <laughs> or something, you can explode your cardinality and and and, and run into trouble.
3: Gotcha. So uh, when you said, when you are talking about querying this information, right? Uh, can we use like SQL quer- queries or is it through Flux?
4: Primarily the language is Flux. And hmm. Flux um, is a query language, but really it's a data transformation language. And another thing to note about Flux is It's a full-on programming language. So we have things like HTTP requests, Mm -hmm. right? So imagine that you're doing a query and you want to know what is the current temperature outside the factory, right? You can, in your Flux, make an HTTP request to some endpoint that has that, you know, weather service temperature and then use that in your calculations. Let's say you have a database that has customer metadata. You can do SQL.from, query that external database,
0: mm-hmm.
4: then query your, your um, time series data, join that information together. And by the way, you can also call a remote endpoint, write to another database. So you can write programming tasks that, out, if, you're not, if you're not using InfluxDB, you have to go to your ops team and say, hey, I need to stand up sure. a VM yeah. so I can run this job. And they say, sure, give me a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And then you have to monitor that thing. <laughs> you have to, you know, make sure it's not failing. And et cetera, et cetera. So you can take with Flux, you can take like all of that complexity of writing that application and just hand it off sure. to InfluxDB. And we will run those jobs for you. And we, you know, you can write alerts if they start failing for Whatever reason, et cetera, you can build all that operational intelligence like into your Influx system. Yeah, okay,
0: that definitely sounds like a very powerful tool, and I imagine it. It bodes well for those custom solutions that it sounds like you work with a lot. You know, with various customers, they want to do yeah. something very specific. So having this programming language to to enable that makes a lot of sense. I do.
4: I'd like to add a couple things though. Yeah, please. That. Like, um, so we have, um, uh, um, so we're on like. 2.3 of the open source product. And you know, we have an enterprise product, and you know, we have uh, you know the 1.x open source product. Um, we support another query language called InfluxQL, mm-hmm. okay. which is sort of a, a twist on SQL, but that has time series capabilities put into it. And that's really a query language. So if um you know, if you're used to SQL or et yep. cetera, that's accessible through the API. That's not accessible through, through our UI currently. Um, we also are building a new storage engine called IOX, which, um, it, totally open source. You can go try it, run it and everything. Uh, that uses a query engine that is also open source, uh, that we're one of the top contributors to and maintainers that's called data fusion and that is a pure SQL query implementation. So if we were, if we, if you invite me back to this podcast next year, we'll be able to talk about our full on uh, SQL support and and things that will build on top of that also.
0: Yeah. We'd love to have a follow-up for sure. <laughs> um, well, I want to switch gears a little bit and kind of, uh, you know, direct us back towards kubernetes a little bit and and the it's sort of a two-fold question uh which is you know when you started running influx on kubernetes for your own managed uh infrastructure on the different cloud providers which you mentioned earlier earlier what you know fundamentally changed for you know for the company as you know was there any strategic sort of path you took uh that that you know, enabled you to do different or more interesting things because you were using Kubernetes. And and the second part of that question would be, you know, do you direct people mostly to use that managed service versus you know having them run InfluxDB mm-hmm. on you know their own Kubernetes infrastructure?
4: Um. <clears throat> yeah, those are two. Yeah, two really different questions. Yes, so two very, very different of... <laughs> questions. Start with start with the first. I'll start with the first one. So, first <laughs> one. so like, um, using. So first of all, we were very early to Kubernetes. Like, mm-hmm. So like we um unfortunately in many ways we're we're we're, we're trailblazers and um <laughs>
0: you, uh, you take the brunt of it. That's that we're thankful yeah, of. <laughs> yeah.
4: So uh but it did allow us to we call it a cloud abstraction layer, right? So it did allow us to be able to um support Multiple cloud providers, mm-hmm. right, and to be able to take this thing and run it,
1: yeah,
4: in different places. Um, we um, used a system for that, which was a combination of JSON it and Cube Config mm-hmm. or Cube CFG, which um, uh, I hadn't worked with the authors in you know, previous life of those uh, projects or at least the maintainers. Um, and so that allowed us to um, templatize the deployments at different levels. Right. So we could have like a date based deployment, then have like uh, on top of that, like a JSONic configuration mm-hmm. that said like modify the base deployment, one for each of the cloud providers that we support and then with even within the region then we could add more configuration on top of that like this region do this this region do that and etc and so that cascading config allowed us to separate the service development and the um configuration uh, um which you know really especially in the early days was like really useful uh just because we just weren't at the scale that we are Mm -hmm. now and so like how to deal with like noisy neighbor problems and that kind of thing was a bit was a bit harder just because you know we just simply didn't have a scale to um avoid all that and it it allowed us to also like experiment you know to like hey let's add a let's add a service just here and just kick the tires on that and you know like so we've done some experiments where like you know, what if we have this crazy service and it's just a matter of adding that service configuration to yep. the right file, which, by the way, I don't know if you saw our talk at in Valencia at KubeCon, but that is also a very sharp knife. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it just gave us that like ability to really um, to to move fast and try things. Uh, and when you pair that with our CI/CD system, which um, is GitOps based, <laughs> then that allows us to just have a system where somebody can change code or change configuration by just uh, pushing code or configuration changes into the Git repositories. And then it can be as targeted or as broad as you want to target that. Okay, that so uh, uh, Rick, before we
3: you answer the second part of Ryan's question, right? Uh, yeah. I have questions specific to the cloud deployments. So, are yeah. you consuming like managed services from each of these vendors for Kubernetes, or do you run these on just cloud VM-based instances and have a, a
4: different orchestration yeah. layer like a Terraformer? Or- so, to begin with, we like got our own VMs and installed our own,
0: mm-hmm.
4: et cetera. Yeah. But now we run on the cloud providers default Kubernetes, like EKS, AKS. Which is problematic because they do not support the same things. They are not on the same versions. Google comes along and says, oh, by the way, we're going to upgrade all all of your your nodes with the new Kubernetes version. And you find that out as we discovered. (laughs) If you happen to be doing a deployment when that happens, your code isn't necessarily like well-behaved in those circumstances, you know? So there's like, those did, like that won us. There's a lot of win there because now we're not managing Kubernetes ourselves, mm-hmm. but that actually injected a bunch of uh, complexity. So uh, we also consume other services like um, like uh, information that's not time series data. Mm-hmm. We keep in Postgres that we, we don't manage our own Postgres. We sure. use, you know, the... Cloud providers compatible Postgres, for example, um, and uh, there's some places we want to do that more of, but mm-hmm. just because like when we started, there weren't necessarily ways to do all these things. We had we built a lot of our own things that are yeah. are a bit harder to migrate away from, but we plan to. So yeah, we're we're very supportive of using the underlying cloud. Providers' implementations of common services, like um, I like if I were doing it, if I were to 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 make a recommendation to somebody, I would just like don't don't spin up your own Kafka, don't spin up your own your own Postgres. Like yep. going further, I would say like use Noble Nine for your SLOs, use Edge Data for your log management. Like anything. That you can offload onto another provider, do it. So then you can just stay focused on like your code, your value add. And,
3: um, yeah. So that's, that's really important, right? Because I think uh, Jeff Be- Bezos said this, right? Uh, that only focus on things that actually makes your beer taste better. And he was referring to like the breweries in, in Europe in like the 1800s where okay. they had to run their own power grids. Uh, and uh, which didn't make the beer taste better, and then eventually there were breweries who set themselves apart and stopped managing the power infrastructure and just focused on making the beer taste better, so I think that that analogy works here perfectly.
4: I like that yeah that that's that's good I, I think that there's you know one thing is like we talk about the cloud service providers mm-hmm. um services which are are which is good, but I think what you what I really recommend people to do is to We really recommend to the degree possible, like just opt into the community of third-party vendors who are not aligned with a cloud service provider, who are not aligned with like a big vendor. Like um, there's like, like uh, replicated. If you need like a solution for Mm -hmm. on-prem or whatever, like replicated has no, Um, motivation to like get you to buy other services or lock you in or make it harder to like use other, other infrastructure, et cetera. Like I already mentioned Noble nine already mentioned, mentioned edge Delta. You know, if you want to get to a marketplace, like look at a, you know, company like tackle IO who will help you get to all the marketplaces and, you know, like they create an abstraction that keeps you from getting locked in. So I think there's this community of companies that are kind of in a second wave of vendors, like people who have managed Kubernetes and built things on top of Kubernetes and then are solving problems for Kubernetes users like us, but not from the perspective of like, hey, we're like a vendor trying to lock you in or direct you down our, you know, whatever our upsell is or whatever our lock-in is, et cetera. So that's like i'd really strongly recommend that people outsource as much of that as possible and try to opt into that community of providers to degree possible
3: and some of these names are new to me so i'll definitely like look those up. up uh because as you said right as much as we can offload uh, that's better yeah. um, uh, going back to ryan's second question right like if uh, customers want to not consume the managed service but run influx db enterprise i think uh in their own data center environments Uh, Do we still need Kubernetes or that's just running on Linux virtual machines?
4: Um, So that case that you're self-managing, that's really your your option. So we provide different ways for you to install and manage that software. One way is we give you a Helm chart and you can install the Helm chart in your Kubernetes environment. But um, we give you other orchestration formats that predate Kubernetes. We have uh, Terraform templates.
0: Honestly, okay. a
4: lot of people just go and w get the binaries <laughs> and apply the licenses and yeah. run the scripts to configure it. You know. So.
3: Okay. At that point, it's pick your own poison, right? Whatever they are comfortable with.
4: Uh, yeah, so. I mean that's the whole point, right? Like if you can't use a multi-tenant SaaS and you have to manage on-prem, then you're already like you know locked into whatever. Yep. Granger for the ones who get it done.
3: So uh, w- one more question: while, while I was getting ready for the episode, right, uh, I saw that InfluxDB can also help me with Kubernetes monitoring. Like, if yeah. I want to use it to monitor what's happening in my cluster, we have we have seen customer deployments where, uh, like, there are customers are running more than hundred nodes per Kubernetes cluster. Uh, and how can like InfluxDB help help them with with getting that information in real time?
4: So um, there's a, cu- a couple of approaches and the first is just we just have like prometheus scrapers just built mm-hmm. in and so if you use the prometheus library to write out those metrics you can just scrape those in into influxdb you can just scrape it into your cloud account set up all your monitoring everything that you want want to that way the a new approach which i think people are going to start adopting, but I don't know if anyone has yet to be really interested to see is akin to that IoT edge scenario I was mm-hmm. talking about where, you know, if you have multiple Kubernetes clusters, you can run a OSS instance inside that cluster, process all the data that's been written. Oh, we have a tool called Telegraph that I, I think I alluded to yep. before that agent Tip, Sorry, tip. Um, one of the main things that people do is actually they, there's a helm chart, they install Telegraph in their cluster, and then that can then grab all those Prometheus oh. metrics as they're being generated and send them to wherever you want they, they want. So one of the things that I think people should look at is to send that data to a local OSS instance running inside the cluster, mm-hmm. and then do just what I said about IoT, like all that yeah. high-fidelity data. Throw it away with the retention policy if it's more than an hour old or whatever. But downsample it, process it, replicate it back to your like primary cloud account so you can, you know, uh, look over it. With those flux ta- flux tasks, you can do interesting things. For instance, um, you can like have like the high fidelity data say just in the cluster yep. with like say a one hour retention policy. And then if you detect an anomaly, say, okay, actually sync all that high-fidelity data back to the cloud. And so that way, if, you know, the whole goes down and reboots and everything, you'll have the high-fidelity data. And if you need to do an RCA later or whatever, you can go back and look at the details.
1: Okay. So, that's,
3: that's a really cool approach, right? Like, we don't have to store everything. But then if there, if there is an event that needs to be looked at, there is an option to, like, ship all that high-fidelity or higher resolution data uh, back to that instance. Yeah.
4: And if you're like, so that's for metrics, if you want to do the same thing with logs, like take a look at edge Delta, they're a really cool company that like, that does something similar to what I just described. um, Gotcha. Okay. Uh,
3: I think this, this has been a lot of great information. Uh, Thank you for diving into like how influx helps customers and then how you like use Kubernetes to run your managed services as well. I think I have one last question, like, how do we like? How can people get started with InfluxDB? The OSS version. I know you you already mentioned that, but like, are there any easy ways to learn more about InfluxDB and then get started with it in their environments?
4: Uh, sure. It's like we have a lot of great documentation. Um, the probably the easiest way to get started is just to go to. Um, influx db cloud on just go to our website Mm influxdata.com there'll be a link there just click the button create a cloud account totally free and then we have some tools there that'll help you set up your developer tools like we can walk you through to set up your python or your javascript or your GoLang environment and you can just do all that for free and like within 20 minutes you can be reading and writing data and and just like experience, experiencing like time series and and what it has to offer. So yeah. Okay. Free free tier cloud account and then take it from there.
3: Yeah, that's easy enough. Uh, Awesome. Is there anything else that you wanted to highlight before we uh, call this off?
4: Oh, geez. I don't think so. I'm sure I'll think (laughs) of it 10 minutes from now. Um, But Hey, I really appreciate you having me on the the podcast and I really um, enjoyed the questions.
3: Yeah, thank you so much for being a guest on the pod, right? And we'll definitely reach back out next year when, when, when you have that update up and running. Um, oh, sounds um, great. Yeah, thank you so much. Looking forward to meeting you in person, maybe at KubeCon North America. Sounds good. Yeah. Yep. Thank you
4: so much, Ray. Bye-bye, bye. bye, bye.
0: All right. Well, it was great having Rick on the show. I don't know about you, uh, Bhavan, but I haven't done a ton with time series data. Uh, I know it's you know a lot of the data out there from you know different sources is really time based. If you really think about it, so mm-hmm. uh, really interesting solution to dive into with Rick here. Uh, you know one thing I wanted to note was sort of the the choice of their managed service and how it sort of uh, evolved over time, uh, right? Because they were early to this sort of whole Kubernetes ecosystem. And, you know, you mentioned at first, you know, they uh, were deploying their own virtual machines and deploying Kubernetes and and sort of, you know, having to manage all that. And now as, you know, this ecosystem has matured, as we've seen over the years, you know, they're going with sort of the cloud provider versions of, of Kubernetes. And, you know, um, you, one might think that makes their lives a lot easier, but, you know, to his point of uh, view there that it comes with its own challenges, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be aware of um, when those versions of kubernetes go um you know uh, out of uh, com- you know out of use, and and they get automatically updated. Or uh, if you're doing certain, um, if you're doing certain things while those updates are happening, or you know, being aware of what they support or what they don't support. So you know, just a really interesting kind of real world use case of you know the pros and cons. So so be uh, of using sort of your own pre built infrastructure versus um, you know something managed. And you know, to his point of view, it really sounds like their focus as a company really is to focus on their own innovations. And so, you know, we've heard this in in the past where managed services really do allow you to kind of refocus your efforts where you want to, right? Offload the the, um, operations and management of something else. You know, he mentioned a bunch of them, you know, not just Kubernetes, but specific databases or data services that they're using. So uh, I thought that was an interesting point. I know. And
3: I think for me, right, uh, one takeaway was just the way we did this episode. I think uh, it was interesting to see how InfluxDB and Time Series Database can help Customers with different use cases, especially the IoT use case, right, where all the high resolution or high fidelity data is available on site, but then you aggregate that or you up level that and then send only aggregated information to the SaaS platform. So that was an interesting, like, new approach of like thinking about use cases. Uh, and then I did like the fact that, okay, they're running on Kubernetes in the public cloud. Yes, but then if customers still want to own everything, even own the control plane, uh, they have solutions. They, Eric mentioned, they have like Helm charts, they have just simple linux binaries that you can download they have uh the, the agents like the uh the, that you can run on your kubernetes cluster itself so different ways you can get started with InfluxDB. and uh, i think since they have been using kubernetes for a while they have figured out what's what are the best delivery mechanisms for these on-prem components as well so i think it was a good balance between how they are consuming it what were the challenges how they evolved their saas based offering and then what their on-prem looks like uh, on-prem solution looks like as well
0: yeah, I couldn't agree more. So, you know, I think that brings us to the end of uh, this episode on InfluxDB. Um, and, um, you know, I really enjoyed uh, tackling this sort of uh, specific topic. And uh, we'll look forward to next week. Uh, I'm Ryan. I'm Bob, And thanks for joining another episode of Kubernetes Bytes. Thank you for listening to
1: the Kubernetes Bytes podcast.